If you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew 23, we come this week to the end of uh, this chapter, the end of a section where Jesus has been uh, proclaiming woes, very, very severe condemnations against the religious leaders of his time. But at this point, it's not simply the religious leaders, but it's the Jews as people. And it's very interesting to think of uh, the degree to which in past centuries, everybody would say Jesus here condemns the Jews, but I'm not supposed to say that, you know, we shouldn't say that it's the Jews that are condemned because then after all, we might all become Nazis, right? Well, it is the Jews and it's the Jews because the Jews were the recipients of the wonderful, wonderful revelation, the wonderful ministry, the prophets, the wonderful promises, the wonderful sacraments, the wonderful, all these treasures that God had poured out on his special people, the Jews. The Jews had received. So it is the Jews now that Jesus is condemning. He turns, and no longer is it simply the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders, but now he turns to the nation. And this is what he says, beginning with verse 34 of Matthew 23. Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Now, we have been listening to Jesus' condemnation of the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. And this is what he had just said to them before the text we read this morning. He had just said, So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? And so we see Jesus saying that the people he's addressing... Their fathers murdered the prophets that God, out of his love, had sent to them to call them to repentance and to himself. Now, how would we expect God to respond? Well, we would expect God to be done with them and to judge them. Certainly not to send more of his servants to them or to their sons. They've had their chance, right? But do you remember the parable that Jesus told about the owner of the vineyard sending his servants back to the tenants to collect what was his due? In Matthew 21, beginning with verse 34, we read the end of that parable as Jesus told it. When the harvest time approached, he, the owner of the vineyard, sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. And then you remember that he says, I'll send my sons because surely they'll listen to my son. And what did they do to the son? They killed him. 
So in the parable that Jesus told, he made it clear that God does not send just one messenger, just one prophet. That God doesn't deal with just one generation. But what we see here is that Jesus has just gotten done saying that they're serpents and vipers. And then Jesus says this, Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. I have sent, I am sending, therefore I will send. Now, how does the word therefore fit? It doesn't fit at all. You wouldn't expect the word therefore to be there. You know, he says, you know, they're serpents, vipers, how will you flee the wrath to come? You're headed for hell. Therefore, I am sending. Doesn't make any sense. So what's the deal? And then when you look later in the text and you see Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you are unwilling. There's absolutely no way that we can read this without seeing the love of Jesus Christ. This is the love of Jesus Christ. This is the love of the Father. He's not done the first time, and he's not done the second time, and he's not done the third time. If God the Father is the tenant landlord of the vineyard, the first one they beat, the second one they beat, the third one they beat, and then he sends Gesundheit. That was a good one. So he sends one, he sends two, he sends three, and then he sends a larger group, and then he sends his only son. And then Jesus himself puts himself in the role of these people who are warning these servants of God. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And he likens himself to a bird. It's not really the word hen, it's bird. And you can picture a bird with her wings spread, sheltering her chicks. And he says, I have desired, and not just them, but their children. I've desired to protect your children. There's absolutely no way to look at this without seeing the love of God. God's patience with us. Many people, as they have come to God in faith, have found a poem called The Hound of Heaven and have loved it because it's about a hound dog. He never gives up chasing the coon. Now, I mean, that's not exactly what the poem's about, but I mean, that's the image that's conjured up with the hound dog, right? It bays and it runs and it sniffs and it's after you. And this is the way God is. God is a good coon dog. And he's after us and after us and after us. And he does not give up. And he cries out through the mouth of his son, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He knows who we are. He saw us stone the prophets. He saw us turn our hearts away. And he comes after us some more. Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. And so we look at the New Testament and we look at him sending the disciples. They become the apostles, the first officers of Christ's church. And then we see that they establish elders in every city and we see that they preach. And we see the apostle Paul going from city to city to city. And Jesus says, therefore, 
Behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. And what do we read in the Bible? Well, what we read is that he, Jesus, did send his disciples, and this is what happened to them. As they went, they became outcasts. We read with Stephen, the first martyr, in Acts 7. They cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. And then we read the next words. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. And Jesus says, Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. Acts 14:19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they what? They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Acts 17:13. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. In my office... There's a little piece of wood. I've shown it to you several times in my sermons. Just a very rough piece of driftwood, about that big and about that long. And in it are stuck a bunch of uh, horseshoe nails in the form of crosses. And there are ten of them, different angles. And then there's one cross that comes out of the bottom, and it's upside down on this piece of wood. And then off on the right side is a little silver coin. Back in 1970, my father wrote on the back of it after having crafted it himself. He wrote on the back of it, Christmas 1970, to Tim from Dad. What was that gift? What was that gift? Well, that piece of wood... It's the record from church history of what happened to the disciples of Jesus Christ. Eleven of them were martyred, and one of them wasn't. And who wasn't martyred? Actually, he was a martyr to his God, money. So the twelfth one is Judas, and it's a silver coin. And the rest of them were all martyred. And what's the upside-down cross? Well, church history tells us that both Paul, the Apostle Paul and Peter, died under the Roman Emperor Nero. Who's Nero? 
unbelievably wicked. And church history tells us that the Apostle Peter refused to allow himself to be crucified upside or right side up because he was not good enough to suffer the same death as his Savior. So he demanded that they crucify him upside down. And so that's how Peter died. Doesn't that sound like Peter? <laughs> you know. All right, then, Lord, my, my whole body. <laughs> In the upper room, remember, Jesus washing the feet. Jesus says, therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. If you sent one messenger and one messenger was persecuted, you would not send a second, neither would I. If you sent a second and he was stoned, you would not send a third, neither would I. If you sent three and they were stoned and they were persecuted, you would not send a larger group. And if you sent a larger group and they were killed, it's inconceivable that you and I would send our only begotten son that we love. And that's God with us. How much does God love us? Is God's love tied to him not knowing who we are? Does the Bible say here that God thinks that probably the next batch of servants are going to be listened to? Does he send more servants because they will be the ones finally that will be able to pull it off? Is that why he sends them? It says why he sends them. Does he send them from his love? Does he send them from his love? O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones that are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Does he send them from his love? Does God send preachers to you from his love? Yes. But having said yes, we haven't said it all, have we? Because what does it say? It says this. Therefore, behold, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues, persecute from city to city. And then we have so that. Two little words, so that. And so really we have a record here of why he sends them. Why does he send them? So that, so that what? So you will repent. So you will turn, right? Wrong. Look at the text. So that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth. (sighs) This is not a professor in the sociology department of Indiana University. And this is not an ethicist in the philosophy department. Why does he send them? So that the blood guilt will increase. This is God. God 
sends his messengers so that the sons of those who persecuted and killed the former messengers will themselves have more blood guilt on the final day of judgment. Now, if you can come up with a construction for the text of God's holy writ, which I just read, which means anything other than that, God bless you and let me hear it. But it's impossible. It's a so that. That means because, to the end that, all right, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth. This is not the God of evangelical America. This is not the God of Rick Warren. Do you think there was anything about Rick Warren at the forum where he had Barack Obama and John McCain present in the context of a congregation of a church of Jesus Christ? Was there anything about him there that was opening up the blood guilt of them, of the congregation, and of the nation? Anything about it? Was there anything about what Barack Obama was doing or what John McCain was doing or what Rick Warren was doing that would cause anybody to stone him? Anybody to crucify him? Anybody to persecute him? No, it's laughable. Why? Because people, 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 brothers and sisters, we, have, we don't give a rip about blood guilt. We don't give a rip about blood guilt. We couldn't care less. I mean, you understand this. What we think is that God is blind and deaf and dumb. Or if he's not dumb, he is blind and deaf. He may speak, but he doesn't speak from knowledge. He doesn't speak from seeing, and he doesn't speak from hearing. We believe that the blood of this nation is hidden. We believe that blood should not ever into a civil forum where we're all learning to talk in a more tolerant method of discourse. I mean, the whole, the whole basis of this, of, this, of this, what did they call it, forum? What was it? Was it called a forum? Is that what they called that thing? The whole basis of the Barack Obama and... John McCain and Rick Warren love fest, all right? The whole basis of it was that nobody saw Moloch, nobody saw the blood, and nobody thought God could see anything. Jesus says, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth. Now, how on earth can Jesus hold the people there rejecting his message accountable for blood if he doesn't keep track of it? I mean, the only possible way that Jesus can say what he says is if he is absolutely aware of every drop of blood. This is a hard truth for those who think lightly of God's mercy and love and never stop to consider his anger and wrath and justice. If we made God in our own image in this soft and sentimental time, there's no limit to his patience and long-suffering. And both his patience and long-suffering have only one goal or end, namely to demonstrate his great mercy. And yet here the word of God says, 
that more messengers will be sent to the Jews, not just the religious leaders, but the Jewish nation, so that they may bear even more blood guilt of the righteous men they and their fathers kill, which will inevitably result in even greater condemnation. In other words, as Jesus says, to whom much is given, much shall be required. But it's very interesting how back then and still today, we use God's mercy and his long suffering and all of the wonderful specifics of his dealing with us as people as proof that we will never be judged, as proof that we have Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses as our father. You remember the exchange between Jesus and the religious leaders where they said that they had Moses as their father and God as their father, and Jesus said, no, you don't. Your father is the devil. And still today, when we think of the heritage of Christianity and the many, many centuries of the preaching of Scripture and of the name of Jesus Christ that has been, the Western world has been blessed by, when we think of being Protestants standing in the line of Luther and Calvin and, and Spurgeon and all the great preachers, Piper and Boyce and MacArthur and all the great preachers today, and the Word of God is raining down on our nation in truth. And what we do with this is we say to ourselves, well, we are special. God has set us apart. God has blessed us with the truth. And therefore, we are beyond judgment. We are beyond fear. We are beyond God's condemnation because look at the messengers that He sent us. And the presence of messengers still today is proof to us that we'll never give an account to God. We are the special ones. We're the ones that have the messengers. You can go over to the House of Parliament over in London, and you can see right in front of it a statue of, uh, of Cromwell. You can go there and you can find gr the graves of, of Watts and Newton. You can find the grave of uh, John Owen. You can find in Northampton, actually, no, it's in Princeton. You can, in Princeton, the irony, where Peter Singer pre preaches, teaches. Uh, you, can go, you can go into Princeton and find the grave of Jonathan Edwards. And what? America today, it's still true. What? It's still true. I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth. It's very interesting to see how Scripture deals with this concept of bloodshed um, and the promises it makes to us that God keeps careful track of it. Um, because what we see is that the Bible says God never, ever loses track of the suffering of the righteous. In Numbers 35, verse 33 we have this command from God. He says, So you shall not pollute the land in which you are. 
if you have a twisted mind the way mine is, and I read that, you should be thinking a certain direction, right? It says, you shall not pollute the land in which you are. I mean, that fits comfortably, doesn't it? We're all against pollution, right? Don't you have a sense of selfish or self, uh, a sense of self-righteous indignation when you're behind a car and you see some bozo toss out a beer can? I mean, I'm just in full form. I might go up next to him and yell at him. Even if it's a tiny little candy wrapper. I mean, what am I supposed to say now? Over here you have Al Gore. And over here you have Almighty God. And never the twain shall meet. Not because Al Gore is a Democrat. I couldn't give a rip. Why? Because Al Gore is carefully, studiously avoiding the pollution that matters to God. In fact, not avoiding. He's promoting it. So is Barack Obama. And if John McCain could get elected and do it, I wonder sometimes whether he wouldn't do it too. The truth is, Republicans and Democrats don't give a rip about the pollution that is at the center of the heart of God. And what is that pollution? Numbers 35:33. So you shall not pollute the land in which you are, for blood pollutes the land. And no expiation can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. How are we going to deal with this? So what do you want me to do now? Shoot myself? And let's give it up. Let's shut the church down. Let's, let's clamp the Bible shut, put a lock on it, tie it back, chain it to the podium, close the doors of the church, What am I supposed to do? Psalm 72, For he, God, will deliver the needy when he cries for help, the afflicted also, and him who has no helper. He will have compassion on the poor and needy, and the lives of the needy he will save. He will rescue their life from oppression and violence, and their blood will be precious in his sight. I think the awfulest verse of the Old Testament is this from Isaiah 26:21. For behold, the Lord is about to come out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. The Bible makes it completely clear to us that God loves the orphans and the widows. 
The women whose fathers and stepfathers have abused them, God knows them. The little children whose mothers and fathers murdered them while they were in the womb, God remembers and counts every drop of their blood. The fathers and mothers who are put into a hospital room and given steadily increasing drips of morphine, suppressing their vital functions so that they will die earlier and not consume the inheritance of their children. God knows the blood of those feeble, old, senile people. The spina bifida babies and the Down syndrome, the autistic children, the people that live in double wides, the Africans dying of AIDS, the orphans left in the streets, Not one of them has God lost track of. And his brain's big. He has a memory bank. It's not terabytes. It's infinite. His Lamb's book of life remembers everyone who looked to him in faith. And his accounting sheet of the blood of the innocents is meticulous. It's beyond... What any accountant could do. And none of that blood is lost to him. We can't begin to understand this text given the desensitization, the, given the uh, callous, the, the scarred, the... Um, uh, the, the the blindness and the deafness and the inability we have as a people today to care about blood. And yet it's very interesting. We testify against ourselves because if I had asked you whether or not God keeps track of the blood of innocence the day after 9-11, all of us in righteous indignation would have said, oh, yes, and we're going to go after them. But why does God care about 9-11 victims and he doesn't care about unborn children? Is it because God's heart is like ours? It's fickle? If we make a decision to kill somebody, we, then it's righteous. But if Arabs make a decision, who worship? Well, then it's illegitimate. So somehow God runs perfectly congruently with American public opinion. Is this what it is? And the evangelical church just has to figure out what American public opinion is, and then we know the mind of God? I mean, isn't that what the church in America is? Let's be honest here. Isn't the church in America exist to perpetuate the prejudices and the, the, the pride and, and the self-seeking and, and, and destructive bloodlust of the nation that it's in the midst of? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I have longed to gather your children as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. And that's curious. So what Jesus is saying then is that he keeps track of all of the blood that he adds the messengers 
to those who have already been sent, knowing these messengers also will be rejected and many of them killed. And he keeps track of the blood. He does it so that the blood guilt will be filled. And he does it from love, with love. All this is in the text. And then he says, as describing his love, that he's like a bird that wants to cover our children with its wings and to protect them. And then he says what? What does he say then? Look at the text. He says, and you were unwilling. You were unwilling. Now, again, I say this so often. We either look at Scripture and we're finally at rest because it diagnoses us properly. Our mother mother never got us right. Our mother was always prepared to either put a better construction on us than should ever be put on us or a worse one. But God sees us with 20-20 vision absolutely accurately. And he says, here I am. I desired to gather you under my wings, to gather your children. My love reached out to you. But what? You, verse 37, were unwilling. In other words... All across history, God's messengers have been sent. And all across history, God's people, a very, very weird construction by uh, J.C. Ryle. (laughs) In fact, let me see if I can find it and read to you. He says this. um, I'm going to be able to find it. Um, Yeah, 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 yeah. Here it is. He's talking about how God keeps reaching out after us. And he says this. He says, this is the way in which God generally deals with unconverted Christians. (laughs) What is an unconverted Christian? (laughs) What is that? Well, that's what America's full of. An unconverted Christian is a husband that forces his wife to kill their unborn children, child that's been diagnosed with Down syndrome. An unconverted Christian is a man who commits adultery on his wife and is unrepentant. An unconverted Christian is one who refuses to sit under the conviction of the Word of God preached each Lord's Day morning. And yet God goes after them. I think there's another thing that we have to be very careful of here. And that is we have to be very careful to understand upon whom lays the blame for the condition of those who reject the messengers of God. Does the blame rest with God? Many of you would sit there and say, yeah, the blame does rest with God because he says that he is sending the messengers so that their blood guilt will increase. But then when it comes to them rejecting his ministry of love, where he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
How often I've longed to gather your children as a hen gathers her chick under his wings. But, what? He says, you were unwilling. In other words, when we stand before the judgment seat of God, those of us who are damned to hell will never be able to put the blame on God. The Bible says that he sent us messengers so that the blood guilt that we bear would increase. And then the Bible says that we were unwilling to repent in turn. Do you understand this? It's our habit to look at Scripture with minds that think they're logical, think they're able to be reasonable and rational and to piece together arguments and puzzles. You see this often in discussions of things where Scripture is clear, and then people come out with thousands of words explaining why Scripture is really confused and it doesn't mean what it says. Take the things that matter most to us today, the things that we hate most in God's Word, and look at those who hate what God's Word says, and you see that they have this unlimited trust in their own intellectual ability, their own sophisticated arguments, their own logical their ability to deconstruct things, to piece together, their, their knowledge that there is such a thing as an ad hoc argument, ad hominem argument, um, that you shouldn't attack the person, but rather, uh, you know, you've got all these different devices you have to, 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 to reassure yourself that your brain is not affected by the fall. And then you look at how your brain runs, and the thing I think is so funny is at the very time that we think our brains are absolutely perfect in their ability, you see them in lockstep with the prejudices of the most decadent nation in the history of the world. I think, you know, if a brain really is operating in truth, probably it doesn't march in lockstep with the op-ed pages of the New York Times, right? Probably it doesn't have the convictions of Al Gore, right? Probably it's not, like, lining up perfectly with the Republican Party. Right? I mean, it's, it's unlikely that God's truth today runs in perfect conformity with the party platform of the Republican Party. Will you grant me that? All right. And so we come to Scripture... And we take a text like this, and first of all, we say, so that the blood guilt increases, well, that can't be God. My God doesn't do that. And then we keep going, and we see that God says that he keeps track of the blood, and then we see that God says that they were unwilling. And what we do with all of this is we say, God's to blame, God's to blame, God's to blame, God's to blame. And then we think, well, it can't be that. God can't be to blame. And so I've got to come up with a system that gets God off the hook. Well, I know what I'll do. I'll give man um, the ability to make his own mind up and God doing everything except the final decision, which is left to the man. And that way, there's like a chasm between man's judgment and his condemnation and eternal hell and God's agency. God can know what's going to happen, but we have to make sure that only man is responsible for what happens. And yet what we see again and again in Scripture is that God is the agent. But we also see that man is blamed. And it's so clear here. 
you were unwilling. And we think about the judgment seat of God and we think, what is going to be true in front of that judgment seat when I stand there? Well, when I stand there, if I stand there dressed in the righteousness of Christ with faith in Jesus Christ, am I going to say anything about how I made a decision for Jesus? I mean, I don't care how Arminian you are, how much in love with human freedom you are. You know yourself. You're not going to stand there and say that you made a decision for Jesus. You're going to say, the hound dog of heaven was after me, and I surrendered, right? Isn't that what you're going to say? And then, if I stand before the judgment seat of God, and I am damned to eternal hell, all my sins are brought out, and I have no righteousness of Christ to stand in my place. Am I going to stand there and say, but God, you didn't give me any mercy. You didn't give me grace. You didn't make me able to believe. Is that what I'm going to say? Well, none of you are saying no, because the truth is that's probably what I will say. You remember that case where, um, do you remember that case of the rich man and Lazarus? You remember that? So Lazarus is, is outside of the rich man's gate. Rich man, he's just, he's, he, he'll eat the scraps from the rich man's dogs. And then they both die. And the poor man, Lazarus, is in heaven. And the rich man is in hell. And so he asked that some water be sent to him. And of course, ever the rich man, he demands that the poor man bring him the water from heaven. And the response from from God is now, there is no reaching over that chasm. It's not going to happen. Well, then he has another demand. And his demand is that somebody go back and what? And tell his brothers. Remember that? So that they won't come to the place of torment he is presently. And they say, no. Nobody's going to go back. And he says, go on, send them. They say, no, if we send anybody, they wouldn't believe. And he says, oh, no, if somebody came back from the dead, they would believe. Now, what is that? Do you know what it is? That is the rich man accusing God of being unfair and not giving the chance he should give to his brothers. Do you understand that? Oh, if you did it right, if somebody returned from the dead and went to him, then he would believe. God, you have an obligation to do everything you can to save the souls headed for hell. And you haven't done enough. Send somebody back from the dead. Then they'll believe. And what's the answer? The answer is no. Even if somebody came back from the dead, they wouldn't believe. Why? Because our unbelief is not an accident. It is a willful commitment of our wicked hearts. That's who I am. That's who you are. Your unbelief is not because you're vulnerable to all the scientific arguments. It's not because you have a mind filled with all the ethical objections. You know what it is? It's because you are unbelievably proud. It's because you love your lust and you will not turn from it. 
It's because you're bitter against your mother. It's because you love to steal money. It's because you're greedy. It's because you're a gossip. And it's because you will not turn. That's what it is. It's not rocket science. I don't have to be bright to say these things. I could be dumb, dumb, dumb. It's just as obvious as the nose on the end of my face. We love our sin. And so we resist God and we resist his messengers and we resist his word and we refuse to repent. And one day we will stand before his judgment seat and he will say to us, give me an account. And we will say, I was unwilling. I had a will. It was mine. And it was absolutely opposed to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because you can't come to the Lamb of God except on your knees, on your face. You can't come to the Lamb of God except in repentance. You can't come to the Lamb of God demanding that your father and your mother and your psychiatrist and your, your major professor and your dissertation committee and, and the Republican Party and the Democratic Party and Al Gore and Rush Limbaugh and, and, and the, 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 the drive-by media and all these people are responsible for all the problems and I'm not. Nothing's my fault because I'm just a woman. And women are victims. Don't you know that? If there's one thing to learn to me in America today, it's no woman is ever a moral agent. <laughs> women are just acted upon. Now, you know, I mean, I hope you know, I don't believe that, right? Women are every bit as capable and accountable as men. In Christ, there's neither male nor female. We are one in Christ. And that means you, woman, are absolutely accountable for every single deed you have ever done. You can't blame it on your husband. You can't blame it on your father, and you can't blame it on your lesbian lover. You are a sinner in the hands of a mighty God. And so here Jesus is. He's nailed us. We tithe our mitten coming, and we don't give a rip about the unborn children. Who cares? I don't care. Do you care? I don't care. We go across heaven to win a single convert, heaven and earth, and then we turn him into twice the son of hell we are ourselves. We're scrupulous about the things that don't matter and completely carefree and desensitized about the things that do. We would never misplace a comma or a semicolon. And we would never toss out a candy wrapper. And the streets of our city run with blood and we don't give a rip. And when I preach... If you could, you would kill me. 
You would say I'm dyspeptic. You would say I'm proud and arrogant and dogmatic. You would say I got up on the wrong side of the bed. You would say I'm Presbyterian. You would say I'm Protestant. And you'd kill me. But I'm the beneficiary of a very civilized time where we kill babies and let our preachers live. I really wish it was otherwise. And it may well be that I have not been faithful to the Lord, that I stand before you today instead of being dead. It may be that the reason Stephen is able to sit there with his arm around his son and his wife is that he is not faithful as a preacher. So what will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? Because really this has nothing to do with me or Stephen. What will you do with Jesus? You've heard him. There's an old quote I love. The problem between us is not that we don't understand each other, but that we understand each other perfectly. The problem with us is we understand Jesus perfectly. What we have here is not a failure to communicate. What are you going to do with Jesus? Will you love this man? If you love him, you have to come on your face. And you have to plead guilty to all counts as charged. You do tithe your knit and coming, and you neglect the weightier matters of the law. You don't give a rip about the unborn children, and you don't keep track of any blood in this nation. The best of you don't. What will you do with Jesus? O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. We know where Jesus' heart is. Jesus' heart is standing there and his wings are out and he's ready to have you take cover. And if you run under his wings, they will provide you perfect protection. Do you know that? You know that. But of course, to run under his wings, you have to admit you need protection. Right? Protection from what? From the judgment of his father. From the accounting one day. Some of you need protection for the killing of your unborn children. Some of you need protection for homosexual intimacy. Some of you need protection for being elders and pastors and giving yourself to sexual immorality. Some, even with those you were to care for. Some of you older women have never once cared for a younger woman of this church. Some of you children have cursed your father and struck your mother. 
Some of you give your minds to idolatry day after day after day with movies. You lust and lust and lust. What will you do with Jesus? Will you flee to him? He will receive you. I'm going to close with a very weird story. Because if you think about this, this bird, and you think about how God has made nature, it's beautiful because it's such a wonderful picture of the love and mercy of God. Mike and Lisa Bowles have a dog and a cat, and the cat had kitties. And the cat that had the kitties was a sort of, what would you say? negligent mother and after a couple of days the kitties were scattered and the mother wasn't caring for them and if you think of god and the imagery he gives us in nature to testify to his love what god did for those kitties is all of a sudden the kitties came back to the mother but there was one missing and then that kitty was brought did it just show up or did how did it get there Oh, they found the kitties, and they brought the kitties back to the mother. It wasn't the mother that got them, okay? But one kitty was missing. You got it, Joe. Come on. Come on. This is such an excellent story. You got to hear it. So they put this one kitten that was suddenly found alive after a week of having been missing, and it was really tiny, so it should clearly have been dead, but there was this you know, mystery that this kitten was still alive and appeared. So they put it in with the mother and the other kittens, um, but it was clearly not at home, and it was crying and crying, and the, uh, the bull's dog was roaming round and round, very, very tense and unhappy, and the dog finally went in and pulled the kitten out and took it to the corner of the barn and gave it a bath and started nursing it. Well... It was clear that that's what had been happening all week, that this dog had adopted, found and adopted this kitten, and that's the only reason it was still alive. So uh, there's a very unique situation that I'm, I'm a little tempted to drive all the way out to Bulls just to see this uh, dog nursing a kitten. You know that the Bible tells us that there isn't a sparrow that falls, but God knows. And so what about us? If that's how God provided for that little kitty with a negligent mother, what about us? If we come to God, he'll never cast us out. He'll never cast us out. doesn't matter how dirty, straggly. He'll never cast us out. But if we don't come, the day will come when we hear him say, but you would not. And if you think about it, here's the end. The end of a good sermon by Rick Warren is upbeat. The crescendos, the trumpets. And everybody leaves uplifted. And here's the end of Jesus' sermon. 
Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Now, what's your house? It's the temple. It's the temple. That's where they are. And whose house is it? Is it God's house? No. Your house. In other words, it's not his house. It's their house. Your house is being left to you desolate, for I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And let me read to you the next verse. The next verse, which we didn't read, is this. Jesus came out from the temple. That was it. That was the end of the sermon. Wasn't upbeat at all, was it? No upbeat to it. All right, that's it. It's over. Bam! You're done. That's it. And now you will not see me again until I come in glory. And then every knee shall bow. He doesn't really need us, does he? He's not really worried whether or not you think he's compassionate and reasonable, is he? He's pretty truthful, isn't he? He's pretty direct. He's pretty dogmatic. He's pretty arrogant. He's pretty harsh. He's pretty everything we hate, isn't he? Or everything we love. Everything we love. If the elders would come, please.